So we uh, conclude our series on a biblical theology of poverty and wealth today. Why do we keep talking about money? I actually had one person ask me that. Are, are we still doing this thing? Do we have to keep talking about it? Aren't, haven't you said everything? <laughs> the reason why we're spending this time is because we set the sermon series in advance and you have to complete it. Um, <laughs> it's because it's a heart issue. All right, money is a heart issue. You know this. It's a lordship issue. Who or what is God and Savior in your life? And in that sense, what we do with our money, how we view all of our money, all of our wealth, our career, is a matter of discipleship. It's a matter of the heart and of who or what is our God. I've actually found it helpful over the past eight weeks to have to sit in this material as I think about my money, about my work, about my resources, as I talk to God about it and as I talk to others, it's been a process of reorienting, and I hope it has been for some of you as well. In, in a conversation with somebody a couple weeks ago, uh, we both came to the, the conclusion that this stuff is not easy. Trying to figure out what you do with your money and how you approach it well before God is not easy. Most of us want a number, like tell me how much I need to give in order to be okay. We want to know what to do. We want a list, and we want to be able to follow it. But instead, what we've been doing here is trying to deepen our theology, basically to deepen our view of God and what he has to say about these things in order to shape our heart. As we understand God's view, our hearts are tuned Godward, and that's been the goal of this. Let me go back over the past few weeks uh, in a quick overview if you haven't been with us. But over the past seven weeks, we have looked at the creation narrative in Genesis, God's law in Leviticus. We've looked at the Psalms, at Ecclesiastes and wisdom literature, the prophets, and even twice at what Jesus does in the Gospels. And here's some of what we have learned if we were kind of summing up our biblical theology of poverty and wealth. God is the creator of all things. That means he is the owner of all things. And he calls us from the creation to be fruitful and multiply. And from an early stage in Genesis 1 and 2 says that flourishing and wealth are not a bad thing. They're a good gift from God. But they are God's. All things are his. The second thing we saw, and we saw this throughout the, the whole Bible, is that God cares deeply about the poor and the needy. Severe financial inequality is not acceptable in the economy of God. Whether it's the law or the Psalms or the prophets or Jesus. In the law, God prescribes tithes and offerings, basically giving things to God and worship and providing for the poor. Even at one point, describing the year of Jubilee when all things would be restored to all people so there was equity in the land. And time and again, we get this picture. We, you and I, are the primary way that God protects, provides for, cares for the poor and the needy. The other thing that we saw was that money and success and stuff and all these things that can be good things that cause us to worship God and enjoy life can also be false saviors, idols in our life. And our view of money might reveal who or what truly motivates us? What is our actual God? 
God ultimately wants us. He wants us. He wants us, as Jesus said, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that necessarily includes all that you have, all your resources, all of your gifts. Love God with everything, and love your neighbor with everything. So how do we get there? Let's see if we can look a little bit at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and see if it gives us some picture of maybe what God might call us to and how we can get there. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. The Corinthian church was a wealthy church. They were a cosmopolitan church. They were fully devoted to the Lord, but they were also fully dysfunctional. And Paul spends more of his time writing to them, trying to correct wrongs, but also encourage them with what God has done in them. And in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 8, he writes about a collection. He says, a year ago you started to do this work, and he says he wants them to finish doing it as well. The work was this. Paul was trying to collect money from the churches that he had planted and bring it back to the poor in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was suffering through poverty. Now, whether this was because there was a famine in the land or they were being persecuted for being Christians, it's not clear, but they were in severe poverty. And Paul goes about to collect money from his churches to deliver it as a gift to provide for the poor in Jerusalem. This is a significant issue for Paul. He records it, it's recorded in Romans, in Galatians, in 1 Corinthians, and the whole collection is talked about in Acts. It was significant for multiple reasons. One is Paul had this calling to preach the gospel, but also care for the poor. Secondly, he actually really cared about the church in Jerusalem, and he knew that they were suffering in their poverty. And the third was that the church in Jerusalem were mostly Jewish, and the churches he had planted were Gentile, and he wanted to show the Jewish Christians, we love you, we care about you. You matter to us as well. So for Paul, this is a significant issue. So he goes to the Corinthians, this wealthy church, and says, can you guys finish this work? Can you guys finish the collection? We'll be coming through, and we're gonna take it to the poor in Jerusalem. And in order to inspire them, he cites the Macedonians, just say who they are um, by reading what he says about them. The churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test, this is uh, chapter 8, verses 2, 3, and 4, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." So Paul is describing a poor church. So it's like you have your church in San Francisco or New York and D.C. In, in a wealthy neighborhood, and then you have a church in a rural or poor urban or rural area. And it's that church he's talking about, this poor church in Macedonia. And they begged for the opportunity to give. And it's almost like Paul is saying, hey, you guys don't have much. You guys are barely making it by. And they say, no, no, no. We want to support our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Help, we want to give. And they gave over and abundantly out of all that they had. Not because Paul commanded them, not because they had to, but because they wanted to. Paul cites something else in verse 8. Give in order to prove that your love is genuine. 
Meaning, the authenticity of your faith is demonstrated by your actions. You are not saved by works, but faith without works, as James said, is not real faith. Prove that your love is genuine. Give generously is an act of your faith. John talks about this in 1 John when he says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart to his brother, how can God's love abide in him? Yes, I love you, God, but I don't love my brothers and sisters. So Paul calls the church in Corinth to give. Why? Let's think for a minute about motivators for giving, right? Why might you be generous? What are some of the motivations that you might have? I think the two primary motivations I've seen, and this is in my life and probably in yours as well, are guilt and self-discipline. Guilt is the description for nearly every financial aid sort of kind of appeal that, that you've ever seen. The telethons that no longer exist, the commercials on TV, any, any sermon on money or on the poor are guilt-inducing, right? You see the pictures, you start thinking about what you have, what they don't, and you feel guilty. And it motivates you to give. Another reason to give is simply because you think it's the right thing to do, and so you, you're disciplined. Out of willpower, order, you, I'm going to give X number amount to these things that I care about. It's the right thing to do. And it's that sort of mindset that many of us have when we think, just give me God's plan. How much do I need to give in order to be okay? Give me a number, give me a plan, I'll, I'll, I'll match it, I'll do it. But as all of us know, there are limits to guilt and willpower and self-discipline. There's just, there's limits to it. We see this in the remarkable case of Andrew Carnegie and the letter he wrote to himself when he was in his 30s. I'm going to read a long portion of it here. It's over two slides. He writes this at age like 32, 33. He's in a hotel in New York, and he writes, here, here's his plan for the future. Within two years, I want to arrange all my business so as to secure at least 50000 per year per annum. Beyond this, never earn. Make no effort to increase fortune, but spend the surplus each year for benevolent purposes. Cast aside business forever except for others, taking a part in public matters, especially those connected with education and improvement of the poorer classes. He goes on to say, man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry, no idol more debasing than the worship of money. I must push inordinately, therefore, should I be careful to choose that life which will be the most elevating in its character. To continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. His goal was this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make 50000 a year, which was a ton of money back then, but never more. And anything more, I'm going to give away benevolently. And I'm going to care for the poor. And you know, his legacy is that of philanthropy. He gave a ton away. Built libraries, especially libraries, all over the world, all over America and all over the world. 
But ask one of the steel workers from his plants in Pittsburgh how they lived. They lived at poverty level, working 12-hour shifts seven days a week, 84 hours a week, slaving in 100 to 130 degree boiler rooms. People in their 50s and 60s didn't work there. You died or you were exhausted and burnt out by age 40, struggling to make ends meet one day off a year, 4th of July. And while he gave a lot away, he never stopped making money. At one point, he was battling back and forth with Rockefellers, the richest man in America, worth over $300 billion in today's world at some point. Even with all of his awareness of the way money would drive him and his desire, at least at an early age, to care for the poor, even though he was generous, there were limits because guilt and good intentions and self-discipline only go so far. You know, when Paul was trying to get the, the Corinthians to give money to the poor in Jerusalem, he, didn't describe, he did not describe what was happening in Jerusalem. He didn't describe the nature of their poverty, how little they had to eat, the nature of their homes, or what they were suffering from, because that would simply be guilt-inducing. He wasn't trying to motivate them purely by guilt. They, look, how, look how poor they are. Nor did he, does he order them as an apostle. He specifically says, I'm not commanding you. Don't do it because I say so, and I'm the, I'm the commanding officer here, and you have to do what I say. He knows that guilt and obedience just to obey are not good enough. So why give Paul's answer is the gospel. The gospel is Paul's motivational source for generosity. In verse 9 of chapter 8, and what is probably the, the main point of this whole passage, he says, here's why you should give. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That he said, give, or you're in trouble. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The gospel is that Jesus, who was in very nature God, the owner of all things, the creator of all things, the Lord of the universe, humbled himself to take on human form. And being found as a man, he humbled himself even more to the point of obedience to death on a cross for us. The Lord of the universe does not exploit the wealth of his position or power for his own good, but gives it up completely and totally for you and me, out of love for you and me. The whole point that Paul is saying is Jesus, God Almighty, gives up everything out of love for you. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. It will transform your understanding of everything you have and all that you are. In a passage that's not often known in Exodus chapter 35, Moses is collecting from the people in order to build a tabernacle. A tabernacle was a moving temple 
They were going to build this massive tabernacle that had all these curtains and drapes and, and all this gold and ivory and all these beautiful things and all the things the priests were supposed to wear. So he says to the people, hey, the Lord wants us to build him a tabernacle and I'm going to collect from you. And so people brought their gold and their jewelry and, and their clothing and their, their items and they began to pour them out so that the artisans and the builders could construct a temple. And at some point in chapter 35 of Exodus, the artisans go to Moses and they say, tell the people to stop giving. We have too much. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, no, 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 we're good. We don't need any more. Compassion International, IJM, this building fund, we don't need any more. We're good, stop. Why were they so overflowing with generosity? This generosity happens after something had happened in their past, the exodus. They had been slaves in Egypt, and God delivered them out of slavery and bondage. He delivered them through the Red Sea, bringing judgment down on the enemies, and then provided for them in the wilderness with manna and water and direction. They had been saved, and their response was generosity. Because the very salvation God had provided was very fresh in their minds, they pour out everything they have, knowing that the gold and the silver and the clothing and the things that they have, they would not have in freedom if God had not delivered them. It wasn't because Moses said give, it's because God had saved them and set them free. Salvation preceded their generosity. The gospel, if you would, of grace enabled them to give. That gospel is that you and I are loved by grace. We don't deserve anything God gives us. And there's nothing we can do to earn it. It is all what he has done on the cross. He dies for us so that we can have eternal life. And in Christ, there's complete and total assurance. You are forgiven. Your identity is secure. God loves you. Your future is guaranteed. There's nothing you need to do. What Paul is saying is that what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross is the only way to release money's grip on our lives. The word freedom is a very kind of on the tips of our tongue sort of idea in in American culture today, and in a sense it always has been. The goal of freedom in today's culture is autonomy. The freedom to do what I want without constraints. Do whatever I want without constraints, that's freedom. And when we talk about financial freedom, it's sort of a similar vein. The idea of financial freedom is that you, you have financial discipline in your life, you plan, you invest, you save, so that your future is secure. You have, essentially, financial autonomy from others. You're able to do what you want. Your future is not constrained. Now, there's wisdom in financial freedom mentality, but it also falls short of the description of freedom that God wants to give us. 
and a freedom financially that is bound up in the gospel. Gospel freedom is not a freedom of autonomy, but a freedom of finding dependence on God. In 2 Corinthians 8.15, Paul cites the gathering of manna. He says, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the manna principle. Basically, while they're in the wilderness, God feeds the people through manna. Every day they were to gather. Everyone had the amount they needed for their families. Nobody had more, nobody had less. They lived in a constant dependence on God for the next day. We in our culture value independence and self-sufficiency. But the gospel calls us to dependence on God's sufficiency. And in that is actually freedom. There's a freedom in trusting God today and tomorrow and the next day. I don't have to try to be in control. There's a freedom in the gospel that that comes out of contentment that only the gospel can give. Derek Thomas Thompson uh, wrote an article in that Christian magazine, The Atlantic Monthly, about the gospel of workism. He talked about how work has become the center of a person's identity and purpose. We seek existential meaning in our work in a way that we didn't in the past. We are looking for a calling. We're trying to find our passion. And if we cannot have purpose, why do it? Derek Thompson writes, the problem with this gospel, that your dream job is out there, so never stop hustling, is that it's a blueprint for spiritual and physical exhaustion. Our economy and the values that we buy into as a result of it spin dreams that we cannot achieve. And they spin a web of fears that we cannot escape. The gospel, on the other hand, enables joy in all circumstances because it's a joy not based on circumstances. Paul's life was filled with suffering, but at the end of 2 Corinthians, he talks about finding contentment in all circumstances, that even when he's at his weakest, he knows he's at his strongest because he's more dependent on God and finding a contentment in what God has given him, not in his circumstances. The gospel enables a a contentment because it relativizes the things that we want in life. The perfect career, the ideal house, the approval of all of our friends, security in the future. And it's not that those things are bad things, you know, like a good career, a good house, approval of friends, security in the future. They're not bad things, but they no longer become ultimate things when Christ is our ultimate thing. The gospel relativizes our desires. And so we're no longer striving in order to achieve success that will get us what we're really after. We're not clamoring to get everyone's attention and approval and acceptance. We no longer need to win at all costs. Whether you win the championship or you're cut from the team, well, look, it's not that you're not happy if you win and sad if you get cut. It's that they are not life-altering, devastating things. Winning the championship is not the only thing. 
Getting cut does not destroy you. And this isn't about, the gospel does not say be indifferent, just give up. Nor does it say detachment, nothing matters. Rather, it is being filled with such contentment for who we are in Christ and what he offers us, the assurance that we have in Christ, that we can live freely. The gospel frees us to perform for an audience of one. And the person you're performing for has already accepted you and loves you fully. Gosh, there's such freedom when we really understand that and let that sink in. The gospel gives us hope and joy and peace that cannot be earned and therefore cannot be lost. So we don't have to be anxious about the future because we have everything already. There is a freedom independence, freedom of contentment, and there's a freedom that comes from the grace that is given us in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7 to 15, I'm going to just pull some sections all on one reading here. This is Paul's kind of conclusion of give generously. He says, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now he will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous. And their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now some of the terms that are in there are grace and gift. Rich, abundance, generous, And it's unclear where Paul is talking about spiritual things and where he's talking about financial things. Where he's talking about the gospel and what Jesus has done for us and where he's talking about giving money to the poor. They're blended back and forth because Paul wants us to see something. The very money we have, the houses we have, the clothes that are on our body are a gift from God by grace. Even if you worked, you would not have the opportunities afforded you if they were not by grace. And so as we give it away, God in some way will use it sacramentally. The gifts that we give financially or in our time, in our energy, is something that God uses to display his grace to the poor and the lost and the needy. Somehow God takes our offerings and shows himself to those that receive and benefit. God has given us everything. And so by grace, we can give everything away. You know, a religious fanatic is not supposedly a good thing. But a religious fanatic, a religious fanatic is different than a gospel fanatic. A religious fanatic will have self-discipline and good works, willing to deprive themselves, all with essentially an inward focus. How does it benefit me? How do I become more holy? How do I get in? 
A gospel fanatic is somebody who is radical for Christ. And the more radical you are for Christ, the more you will be pushed out of yourself. You will give yourself over for others, not for your own good. You will lay yourself down, not to get, but simply out of love. But that is only possible when the good news of Jesus Christ and his love has sunk deep into your own heart. There is freedom in the gospel of grace to let go of the things we hold so tightly to so that we can actually be open-handed. There is a freedom of open-handedness that all things come from you. All things come from you. All that God has given me, my life, my salvation, my money. So the gospel pushes us to constantly ask, God, what do you want with my work? What do you want with my money, with my house, with my stuff? Or rather with his, right? I'm going to end here and invite Susan Gates to come up to continue this conversation. But in concluding this whole series, I want us to let the gospel sink in and motivate us outward in all that we do, using all we have for God's purposes and his glory. I'm inviting Susan up because each week we have taken the time to hear from a different person to give us insights into all that God is doing in this world and to have insights into poverty and wealth. Let me see if I stand here. I think that's better. And you come closer. There we go. Um, I've invited Susan up here to help us to have a little bit of insight into something that happened in the U.S. about 10 years ago. It was the housing crisis that hit, and Susan had a firsthand account of it, um, and she's written a book on it. So I'm going to find my notes in here. Ah, there we go. Okay. So Susan, I, I would do my best to sum up the housing crisis and what happened, but I would confuse everyone. So I'm going to hand it over to you to help us to understand what happened so that we can get an insight into what maybe God would tell us through what happened in 2008. Okay, so thank you. This yep. is like being asked to come up and talk about what started World War II, so <laughs> bear with me. Um, um, I worked at Freddie Mac for 19 years and then left in 2009 after the crisis. So in simplest terms, in a galaxy far, far away in a long, long time ago, no, actually, this happened right here. We are at the epicenter. Starting in the early 2000s, after 9-11, um, interest rates were really low. A lot of other factors um, were in the economy um, that contributed to a noticeable growth in house prices. And this was awesome, wasn't it? And I know right now, I'm speak I can see like 10 real estate agents out here. <laughs> um, people work at the Federal Reserve, my former employer as well. And we... Uh, all of us who own homes uh, probably enjoyed that rise in house prices. Um, things were so strong and so good in the U.S. housing market that this drew in a lot of money from overseas and all over the world. Um, many people took and in, um, invested their money in the U.S. housing market. These high profits on housing were also mesmerizing for us as well, for American homeowners and those who wanted to be homeowners, or those who wanted to have more homes to own. And just about everyone wanted to have, get on the homeownership bandwagon, um, either by buying your first home, or getting more and bigger homes, or trading up. Uh, 
it was an intoxicating time. I don't know if you all remember that, but it, it truly was. Uh, in our country, the way we get homes is not just to go to the bank and take a large withdrawal, but we actually take out a mortgage, don't we? We get a big piece of debt. And it's a good debt because usually and hopefully the house will appreciate as an asset, and so it's a safe bet. Um, and usually, for most people, it truly is. But um, as things looked so rosy and so awesome that there was a temptation there for many of us to overextend to go a little bit over our skis, wasn't it? Um, not only did individuals overextend, so did many financial institutions. And lots of things happened. Um, when you don't worry about risk or the things that could go bad, um, underwriting requirements were loosened. Riskier mortgage products were developed to help more and more um, people in different kinds of situations. Money was lent out. Um, with in, uh, diminishing sort of base and cushions of capital underneath uh, those lending. Uh, and in many times, um, loans were made without a lot of concern about a borrower's real true ability to repay the loan. So as long as the house prices kept going and rising, um, it's sort of like a game of musical chairs. You know, as the music just kept playing, we all kept going around and around and around. It looked like a safe bet. But, um, there's this thing called gravity, and unfortunately things that go up eventually go down, and the 30% rise in house prices that occurred over the source of a decade, uh, that party ended and the music stopped, and there was a massive collapse in house prices. This crash was devastating in its effects from Wall Street to Main Street and actually all over the world. Um, now, it's been a decade, right? And in this area, house prices have come back to a large extent, you might have just thought that that was a bad dream. But there are places and many communities around the country, and I would particularly point out uh, low-income and minority communities where an entire generation of wealth was just wiped out. Mm. The homeownership rate for black Americans now is lower than it was uh, 10 years ago, or even lower than that. Uh, the disparity now has widened. This is something the housing industry was very concerned about a decade ago, and I worked personally in that. And it's um, crushing to see that that has been actually eroded. Johnny's next question is, um, <laughs> I'm going to ask your question. Well, you know, so is, <laughs> are we going to tell us like what, what led to this or what role did greed play? Because it does seem like some of that comes in is that the underwriting of loans that were more risky was really because there's money to be had. Um, I mean, some of that you talked about a little yeah. bit, but I don't yeah. know. So this is really hard because people really disagree on the causes of the crisis. But I would like to say um, <clears throat> many people would just look at the institutional factors, unregulated banks, subprime lenders, uh, co-opted credit rating agencies, even my company right up the street, Freddie and Fannie, um, predatory lenders. But when we look at ourselves, and in fact, the government did a report on this in 2011 and basically said <clears throat> the crisis was avoidable. It was ourselves. We did it to ourselves. Um, but as for greed, which is a word in an, a capitalistic society, is really hard to talk about because it's sort of like gas, right, that makes the car go. So maybe we talk about excessive greed. Um, again, in the government's words in 2011, they said, um, to pin the crisis on greed is simplistic. <clears throat> Rather, it's the failure to account for greed 
that caused the crisis, meaning that we shouldn't be surprised that people were greedy. What we failed to do was not have enough regulations in place, not have enough laws and policemen and enforcement on the beat to make sure that that excessive greed stayed in check. That's true. We would say that's part of the story. But we're people of faith. We know the sinful heart. We know that greed is one of the seven deadly sins. Um, so if we look at that a little bit more deeply, I think that we can see um, the, uh, the aspect of greed did play into this. And what maybe from this whole uh, season in our culture do you think God might say to us, either in response to it or how he might call us um, to live in response to uh, you know, the, what, the housing collapse and the economic downturn? What, what's God want to say to us? What can you give us some insight in? Um, thank you. I, um, I think the crisis was so widespread. Um, economists at the time thought it wiped out a year of GDP. There were so many dirty hands that it's, if we think that God has no view on this, I think that is remiss. So it took me five years and 250 pages to come to my own answer and what to do or how to think about it as a Christian, but let me just go through a couple of thoughts. In 1886, Leo Tolstoy wrote a short story called How Much Land, or we could say How Much Home uh, Does a Man Need? And he wrote about a Russian peasant named Pahum who could not get enough land and eventually falls dead in his pursuits for more and more land, and he's egged on by Satan. 1886. How prescient. Um, I think that there's a great concern about debt, how much debt we um, add to our own household balance sheets, as well as, of course, um, debt nationally is also a major issue. The Bible says the borrower is slave to the creditor. There's hardly a truer word in the Bible. The best advice, I think, is to live below your means, to live below your means, not above them. Um, That rainy day will come, and so will the creditor. Proverbs says, gain instruction, gain wisdom, get it, sell everything, get understanding. So I don't believe that every default and foreclosure was a fault of a financial institution. It's a complicated process to get a mortgage, so we have to be prudent, get counsel, understand what you are signing up for. Lastly, I say this to my brethren in the lending and housing industries or any industry, it's important to let faith come in the door of our organizations. Um, God told the Jews not to take advantage of each other, and nor should we. When there's no law, no regulation, do you have the character, do you have the inner government, or do we rely on those external things and do what we want? There's a lot of Kool-Aid in lots of organizations when everybody is doing it, but we're called to be salt and light, and that takes courage, and that can be costly. Susan, thank you for helping us to see a little bit of what happened and maybe what God might be calling us to. If you guys want to read her book, she's got a copy of it up here. You can pick it up online uh, as well as you can probably talk to Susan about it. It's Days of Slaughter, and it's uh, some good insight into what happened in that uh, period. Let me offer a prayer for us as we confess our sin, but also kind of offer up ourselves, our our whole country to God, and then uh, Mark Carlson's going to come up and lead us in prayer, continue us in prayer. God, we confess that we in and of ourselves are greedy. By nature, we just are. We want more. Um, Help us to find contentment in you, to be wise and generous through you. May the gospel transform our hearts so that in whatever industry we're in, whatever you give us, that we would do that well, that we would uphold all that you've called us to and live to worship, to love, to serve you, and to care for one another. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Susan.